Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill, and this episode we'll hear from Mary Glenn Krauss, who graduated from UNC last year with majors in anthropology and archaeology and a minor in public policy. We'll start with hearing her read her research article, Cultural Burial as a Human Rights Consideration Within the Ebola Response and Beyond. We hope you enjoy. Cultural Burial as a Human Rights Consideration Within the Ebola Response and Beyond. Humans should have the right to practice cultural burial or similar body deposition, CBOSBD, using mortuary rituals including last rites, morning rites, preparation of the body, and final disposition that are connected to one's religion, belief system, and or social cultural community. However, there are circumstances where public health responsibilities to the living conflict with certain mortuary practices. When mourners are denied the ability to dispose of their dead in accordance to their mortuary rituals due to public health concerns, such as the spread of infectious diseases, it can lead to unintentional psychological and physical health consequences. The pressing need for a CBO-SBD right is best exemplified in the Ebola virus, or EVD, epidemic within the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC. Transmission of EVD occurs through direct contact with infected bodily fluids or fomites. Therefore, the physically intimate funerary or burial practices that more than 200 cultural groups practice in the DRC put mourners at high risk for infection from the EVD victim's body. Risky aspects of these traditions include cleaning and decorating the cadaver, transporting the body to the deceased's home village for internment, and holding large public funerals with the body present. These customs put not only the next of kin, but also the wider community at risk for infection. Therefore, the virus remains viable for up to seven days, and its RNA remains detectable in bodily fluids for 10 weeks. This longevity creates a notably extended period for potential infection. In a national environment already played by systematic inequality and low institutional trust, critical standard containment protocols for EVD increase tensions between affected communities and response workers. Only about 7% of the DRC's population have internet access, making it difficult for many citizens to make informed decisions. As a result, misinformation can be easily spread through rumors. In past EVD epidemics, these tensions built upon misinformation and communal distrust of authorities peaked regarding patient burials. Because communities were unable to observe the body after death, claims were made that body parts and tissues were harvested from the dead and used in witchcraft or otherwise trafficked. Even an in-person demonstration of response workers taking saliva samples for testing from a person who may have died from EVD led to protests that the workers were trying to extract organs from the mouth. The use of body bags in patient burials specifically created unease in the DRC's EVD response. 
Rumors occurred claiming that the cadavers were stolen and that the opaque body bags used to quarantine the body were filled with rubble to deceive the community. Some people voiced religious concerns about the body bag's inability to rot, which in turn would prevent the deceased spirit from ascending into the afterlife. These types of rumors led to reports of stolen bodies and coffins from treatment centers and gravesites for secret burials. In order to prevent further infection and mistrust, the International Coalition of the Red Cross, ICRC, the Red Cross Movement, and the British government switched from opaque body bags to transparent body bags in order to allow families and community to confirm their loved one's identity and observe the condition of the body. Academics, public health officials, governments, and emergency health responders are beginning to recognize the widespread need for a safe compromise between standard containment protocol and CBO-SBD within the EVD response. Dialogue with community leaders has increased. Families are now permitted to don personal protective equipment and participate in the preparation and burial of the body. The ICRC and UNICEF-affiliated Social Science and Humanitarian Action Program both seek continual feedback from these communities. ICRC volunteers routinely go door-to-door to collect comments and concerns about safe and dignified patient burial protocol, as well as other EVD-related response efforts, and they publish their findings in routine reports. However, the conversations and subsequent actions need to go beyond the EVD response within at-risk countries. Respectful, sensitive, and educational dialogue on death and mortuary ritual needs to be mandatory for all healthcare professionals in all countries. We need to set up protocols that allow for sensitive mortuary rituals that also prevent infectious disease transmission. These conversations need to involve the recognized next of kin in order to curb the negative psychosocial impact that can occur when mortuary rituals are not conducted. By recognizing CBOSBD as a fundamental human right, conversations about death can be brought to greater attention within the international organizations responsible for protecting human rights and global health. You can read that research article and the rest of the Health Humanity Journal Spring 2020 issue on our website. Mary Glenn, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about your research. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. So I always love when we get to publish research in the journal, and this piece was actually really one of my favorites in the spring issue. So did you originally write it for a class? Yes, I actually originally wrote it for Policy 550 at the time, which is Global Health and Human Rights, with Professor Benjamin Mason Meyer, uh, who is a fantastic professor over at the Public Health School at UNC. Uh, He is by far my favorite person in that department, and I was super thrilled to be able to take a class with him. So how did you originally get interested in this topic of cultural burial? So to back up a lot, to back my life up a lot, (laughs) um, I initially started at UNC as a nursing major, and I quickly realized that nursing at this point in my life is not something that I want to pursue. So I ended up going a complete 
180 and I ended up going into archaeology as my main focus for my undergraduate studies. And within archaeology, I worked specifically a lot with Dale Hutchinson, who is one of our, uh, I guess you could call him one of our bioarchaeologists or bioanthropologists. And I specifically focused on bioarchaeology, which is the study of human remains within an archaeological context. And the politics and the conversations around repatriation and a lot of very important pressing matters that emphasize community participation for descendant communities is very important for what I study. And I think it's just generally a very important thing that more people should be aware of. So I came in to write this article based on that interest of mine. I do like because when you read this article, you know, opening up the journal kind of blind, it does seem like maybe an oddly specific or like a morbid thing to focus on until you do think about it for a second and realize how critical the the burial process is to religion and culture and how much psychological stress it would cause to not be able to carry it out in those practices. So given that larger interest of yours and also this huge topic, how did you approach the narrowing it down to write about it in this concise piece? How did you decide what to focus on? So to quote one of my favorite academics on death, her name's Caitlin Doty. You can find her on YouTube under Ask a Mortician. People in America have a very broken relationship with death. Once the Civil War occurred and we had to start bringing home deceased soldiers uh, via trains and other long-form transportation, we ended up sort of breaking a lot of our traditions where we really handled our dead. So we washed their hair, we clothed them, we held home wakes. And that broken relationship we have with death sort of isolates ourselves from death here in the United States. However, we have to recognize that in many, many, many other countries that that direct hand approach to handling the remains of the dead that is absolutely integral to sort of receiving any sort of closure within their cultures and within their communities. <laughs> as much as Professor Meyer may not be a super big fan of cultural relativism, that is <laughs> definitely something that I studied as sort of a uh, fledgling anthropologist. And in archaeology, that is also very important. So I approached writing this piece by narrowing down my final paper for his course, where I did focus on the Ebola response. So, you know, the living person should always be tantamount to the deceased. That's just that's just the fact. You don't mm -hmm. want to be killing people uh, to respect, you know, values. But one thing that's not widely discussed within public health and specifically within this sort of up and coming area called human rights is in international frameworks. There really isn't any sort of dialogue around what do we do with the deceased and specifically what do we do with the deceased during a pandemic 
And when you look into sort of our international law frameworks, so things that the UN abide by and other large international governmental bodies abide by, the only protection for remains are for uh, people who have been involved in combat with war times. And in this piece, I specifically wanted to address that lack of protections that there is. So I'm curious if there was something specific that really surprised you when you were researching for this paper. For example, I had never considered like the idea of the uh, transparent versus opaque body bags. That was a really interesting point to bring up. Yes, and the conversation that I wrote with the opaque versus transparent body bags is with a lot of these communities within the DRC that I'm discussing within these papers, it's very typical for your loved ones to die at home. Like you are passing at home, or Mm -hmm. if you're not going to be passing at home, you're going to be surrounded by people who love you. However, with the incredibly infectious nature that Ebola is, you can't be around your loved ones when they pass. I feel that there's a lot of analogs to kind of the COVID situation happening right now here in the US. But the idea that not only are you not going to be there when they pass, but also you're not going to be able to handle them and express affection towards them after they have passed is absolutely disgusting. It's so my grandmother ended up passing about three months ago. And I think one of the absolute hardest things was I was not able to be with her when she died because the nursing home was completely shut down with COVID. And I also was abroad for work so well not abroad I was in Chattanooga Tennessee I was I was in the field for archaeology I was digging holes (laughs) but I was also very removed from where she passed and you know luckily she did not pass from COVID she passed from things related to old age but because of those two factors I wasn't able to be with her at all um, in her last moments, nor right afterwards, because they are shutting down so much with what has happened. Even my dad, her 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 son, her her youngest son, mm-hmm. he was only able to sit with her body for a couple of minutes before they zipped her up in the bag and took her away. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not solely COVID, but it is just this like brief encounter that you have, and. I think for a lot of communities where you're going to be having those very intimate and prolonged interactions with your loved one's remains, it's absolutely awful to think about just not being able to interact with them at all. So with the body bags, by having someone zipped up in a in a black bag, you know, you're not going to be able to see their face. You're not going to be able to really interact with them at all. And that just sounds awful. And, you know, there's always in the back of your mind, you know, could she have been donated for organs and I didn't know and people that that sort of bodily autonomy of your loved one is something that weighs very heavy on the hearts of someone who doesn't have proper closure so 
it's important for governmental bodies to recognize that relationship with death that I think all of us have, but we don't really like to talk about it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I'm glad that you did touch on the current coronavirus pandemic because you submitted this so long ago and we published it at the very beginning of, of the spring when everything was starting to shut down. Yes. And then being able to have this part of the journal and you know, talking about a different epidemic, but still there's so many things that we now are having to think about. Mm-hmm. What do you hope people take away from reading this piece? Do you recommend that they seek to learn more about death education? I believe death education is super important for all of us to engage in because no matter what your belief system is, you are going to die, you're going to leave physical remains behind, and you're also 99% likely to have loved ones who are going to have to figure out what to do next. Death education is just something that I think more people need to be aware of and more people need to talk to their older loved ones about. So I wanted to go back to, you majored in anthropology and archaeology at UNC. Yes, I did. Did you have any favorite classes that touched on health humanities related issues like you wrote about here? Yes, I took a class with Amanda Thompson, who is fantastic. Uh, It's just sort of our introductory medical anthropology course. Uh, I recommend it to anyone who's sort of interested in the intersections of anthropology and of public health or really health in general. It's also, you know, preparation for medical school, sort of your ethical considerations. It's very much connected to an anthropological lens, but it's very widely applicable. So if you have any interest at all in health, uh, it is a class I would recommend you take. So what are you doing now that you've graduated? Fresh out of school, I am in an area of archaeology called cultural resource management, or CRM. (laughs) And what it does is basically as part of sort of our environmental regulations that you have to have if you have any sort of federal or state funding for construction or any sort of engineering, you also have to make sure that you're archaeologically compliant. So you have to make sure that you have archaeologists come out and kind of do a land survey and ensure that you're not going to be, you know, digging up Native American remains or any sort of significant archaeological sites in general. Uh, not necessarily just Native American remains, but yeah. you, you don't want to be digging up dead people, essentially. <laughs> so that's kind of what I do is I do the land survey part of that. And what I see my job as is sort of addressing partially that same sort of psychosocial implications that I addressed in my paper. Because for a lot of communities that are heavily represented within the archaeological record here in the southeastern U.S., having people who can make sure to keep larger entities responsible for making sure that heritage and history is acknowledged is important. So, you know, it's important to have both responsible archaeologists, responsible engineering firms, and people who are willing to interact and talk with descendant communities. And ultimately, it's even better if there are representatives from those communities actively involved Mm -hmm. in what 
we may be doing, which is often the case and absolutely 100% encouraged. And we, we get thrilled when we have people on board to sort of consult and talk to us about it. So I am in CRM. I love it. Um, and it is a really fantastic opportunity for me fresh out of school as an archaeologist. That is really fascinating. And I, I just love hearing about the different ways that Jobs like that CRM I hadn't heard of before, but hearing how you are having these conversations about the humanities interfacing with STEM and, and hard sciences. Mm-hmm. It's just so interesting to hear about. So thank you so much for joining me today. This was really great. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate you coming out and making the time for me. Thank you for listening. You can find Mary Glenn's research and references and the rest of the Health Humanity Journal Spring 2020 issue on our website, linked in the show notes, or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Mary Glenn for coming to talk with me. And this was the last of our interviews for Spring 2020, and we'll be taking a short break from posting episodes over the holidays. In the meantime, we've recently published the new Fall 2020 issue of the HHJ on our website, and we'll be back with interviews from those authors and artists sometime in the new semester.